The conversations on this podcast are between the host and the guest and are not directed at any member of the general public. The information is for your listening pleasure, but is not offering you any personal advice. If you have heard something that you feel may be relevant to yourself, please visit your medical practitioner or mental health provider. Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel. And look, this week, something a bit different for you. Uh, It's not me having a conversation with someone. It's actually a friend of mine, Jamie Usher, and uh, he runs the Marlin Trady podcast. Now, this is an episode that he recorded, I think, either last year or the year before for his podcast. But I think this is really raw and powerful, and I think it shows a lot of courage to open up and tell your story like Jamie does in this episode. He's a provisional psychologist and a man who understands psychology and behaviours at a deeper level. This is really awesome, this episode, and that's why I wanted to put it out on my podcast so that people can hear it and maybe give Jamie a follow at The Mind Tradie. I'd be happy to uh, have you give me your comments on Instagram at life underscore changes you underscore podcast or send me an email. Look, have a listen to it. Tell me what you think. And yeah, give him a follow. This is really an inspirational episode. And, you know, I'm glad to call Jamie my friend. This episode is going to be about, is going to uh, tell my story as to how I became to be where I am now. As I, to be honest, I think I need a reminder of why I'm doing what I do. Why do I study psychology? Why do I have a podcast? Why am I a youth worker? I realized that I'd actually lost sight on why I started on why I started all these things, uh, lost sight on what I love about it. It became more about, say, with uni, it became more about how can I get good marks, you know, I've got to get good marks, I've got to do this, got to do that. And I lost sight on why I even started. I lost sight on the fact that I absolutely love helping people get the most out of their lives and get the most out of themselves. That's why I started and that's why I love doing it. And uh, recently I'd lost sight on that. So this story... The story I'm about to tell you is going to be a good reminder for me as why I'm doing what I'm doing today. So I'm going to start this story just a little bit before I was born. In October 1983, on my mum's birthday, my dad decided to get up and leave that night. So I was still in my mum's belly and in the February 1984 I was born. And in the year or two following, my dad had actually found another partner. And my mum had actually started to become quite friendly with a neighbour and in the few years following, they became much closer and closer and also married as well. And then at the age of me, just before I was five years old, they got married and we all moved into a house together. This man whose name was Peter, he had his own children and um, my my brother and I and mum lived together. So there was a five of us. And not long after we moved in, we saw a side of Peter that uh, wasn't really that good. He actually became quite violent with my mother uh, and also with us kids as well, but it was mainly directed at my mother. I remember being in grade one, there was an excursion in my primary school. My mum was supposed to be a helper on this excursion. And on the day of the excursion, I was at school and I got called up to the office and the principal said to me, oh, your, your mum's here to see you. And this is, as I said, on the day she was supposed to help on the excursion. I remember going into the room where mum was, um, she was just on her own, and I remember talking to her and she said, I'm sorry, I can't help you on the excursion today. I said, why? She took off her big glasses to reveal to me a big black eye from the night before. And that's still something that I, I remember, obviously, today. 
And I think those kind of experiences make me who I am today. So being in this house where there was violence, for some reason, I took on the role as the protector. I was the youngest in the house. There was my older brother and there's two stepbrothers as well who were also older than me. I remember there was one experience where my stepfather got quite angry and started to get violent with mum. And I remember that we used to run and like hide in our bedrooms or hide under the bed. And then I remember thinking one day, well, if I'm hiding in here, who's helping my mum? So then I remember kind of running back out, running back down in the hallway and and doing what I could to stop this guy doing what he was trying to do to mum. And I would throw fruit at him. I remember throwing butter at him. I remember jumping on his back and trying to get in the way of, of him doing this to my mum. And uh, just doing what I could to, to stop him from doing, you know, being violent. And I remember getting thrown down a hallway and, and just little things like that. But to be honest, I didn't care as long as I was trying to protect mum. And then because of the amount of times this had happened, I had taken on the protector role from a very early age. But I think living in this environment, I was a hypo kid. If it was today, I'd be diagnosed with probably ADHD or or whatever it is and look I think this really affected me in primary school and and like I was still happy enough in primary school but I was a pretty hyper kid at this time I struggled to leave the house without being extremely protective of mum what would happen is if I had friends that I would say stay at their house it would get to say night time and I would feel incredibly sick in my tummy and I would just make an excuse to need to get picked up but I actually didn't know why this was at the time, I, like, I actually genuinely felt like sick or stressed at the time. But looking back on it now, it was kind of, I had to be protective around mum. Because if I was staying at a friend's house, well, anything could be happening to mum at the time. And that kind of obviously was scaring me. So that would happen numerous times. I would stay at friends' houses. It would get to say 9 or 10 o'clock at night and I would have to say, oh, can I please call my mum or dad or stepdad? I would generally try and call mum to come and pick me up because I just felt sick. I was so nervous and stressed. And another kind of thing that was happening around that time was if I was staying at friends' houses, not only was I nervous that I was going to feel nervous and feel stressed about being away from mum, I was also incredibly nervous that I was going to be wetting the bed because I was also doing that at the same time. So if for some reason I had got over my stress or fear of staying the night away from being away from mum, I was so incredibly fearful that I was going to be wetting the bed and then what people would think about me or my friends or friends' parents or whatever if I wet the bed. This is something that happened quite continuously. Sometimes I'd get lucky and it wouldn't happen. So at the age of around nine years old, my mum and Peter, their stepfather, they ended up fortunately splitting because it wasn't a good marriage. And so my mum and my brother and I moved out, not too far away, but we moved out to a place which ended up being right across the road from my primary school. And even though mum had left her um, husband, which was my stepfather at the time, Peter, who was, who was this violent man, you would think for some reason them not being together now, you would think that I would feel much better. What happened though around this time, uh, say I remember being in say particularly grade four and five, what would happen is it would get to about 10 o'clock in the morning and I would start feeling incredibly sick again. And then so I would go to the sick bay or go up to near where the principal's offices were and I would say, oh, I need to speak to my mum. I need to see my mum or I need to go home. And this started to happen quite often. 
And so what would happen is, because we lived across the road, after a while what they would do, they would call my mum, who was across the road at the time if she wasn't working, in our house across the road from the school, um, they would call mum and they would say, can you come out of the house, Jamie needs to see you. And what I would do is I would stand in the car park of the school and I would see mum come out of the gate of our house and she would see me standing probably with a staff member of the school and just wave to me. And then also, if for some reason she wasn't at home, if she was at work, maybe about 10 or 15 minutes away, the school would have to call mum and then mum would have to leave work and just drive past the school and wave to me just so I knew she was all right. Now, I guess looking back on that, obviously that's not right. That should never have happened. But it did. I took on that protector role so much, I always needed to know that she was okay. That's how we used to do it. So that was happening in primary school. In high school, it didn't really get too much better. It did a little bit, though. But I still remember one of the things that I was so fearful of was because I was still wetting the bed at the time. I wet the bed up until the age of around 14 or 15. I was incredibly fearful that anyone would find this out. And not so much that one person would find out, but like one person finding out in high school, the whole school could find out. I think fortunately it never happened, but the fear and anxiety of that happening was incredible. I didn't really recognise it at the time that I knew this, but I guess in hindsight I was incredibly scared of anyone finding that out. Just, it's incredibly common for kids that grew up in a household with domestic violence or hectic environment or a, a volatile environment. It's very, very common for boys and girls to wet the bed. It's just a common side effect. So most likely that was why it was was happening to me. So when I was, say, mid-high school time, I wasn't very confident at all for a lot of different reasons. I just wasn't really confident. I mean, there's one side of me that was incredibly fearful that people were going to find out that I was wetting the bed. I wasn't really going to be a confident kid. I remember probably being funny and people laughing at me and that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that was all good. But I was never really going to be a truly happy, confident kid for those reasons. But that that's all right. So I guess how I started to transform out of that when I kind of left high school and I was 16. And I've discussed this in another another episode before. I started an apprenticeship with Frankston Mowers, actually. That's where I started off my apprenticeship. And that's where I met the man Murray Hall. Who I, I'm giving this massive shout out to Murray Hall. He absolutely, he took me under his wing. And I think he became the father figure that I needed because he could probably tell that I needed someone around. One of the most important things Murray did was not only helping me change, a, I guess, a, a negative outlook on life and myself that I had, and not only was he doing this in whatever way that he could by giving me books. As I said, I've discussed this in other episodes. He gave me a couple of books to read to, to help me with this kind of stuff. And I still remember, I actually still have copies of these books that he gave me over 20 years ago, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living and The Power of Positive Thinking. I still have these and I will cherish these. So another thing what he did was he introduced me to martial arts. So at 16 years of age, Murray had finally convinced me to come to karate with him. On the first night that he took me to karate, I still remember loving it. On the first night, at the end of the class, there was around 20 people, say, in a circle. And we were doing these specific karate punches. And each person was to count to 100, punching back and forth in the circle. And we would count to 100, and the whole people in the circle were to do it. So there was 20 people that did it, we'd all counted to 100, and end up being around 2,000 punches. Now, I saw people that were quite experienced at karate give up halfway through. And for some reason, I kept going right to the end. 
And at the end of that class, Murray said to me, oh, you did so well there. How did you keep going? And I said, I, I don't know. I just, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And then he said, oh, you got the attention of Billy. And he was referring to Billy Monet, who was the head trainer at the time. And me getting attention from a guy like that, who is still to this day the toughest guy I've ever met, and probably ever will, me getting attention of this guy from a man of such respect, him paying attention to me in such a way was something I'd never experienced before. My own father or my stepfather or any male in my life has never given me attention like that. And the fact that I'd made that attention from him, it really changed something in me at that time. What Billy had said to Murray was, this guy could be a pit bull if you wanted to. No one had spoken about me like that before. I remember that is such a life-changing thing that someone had noticed me, a man had noticed me in that way. Going into, say, more early 20s now, I'd done karate, I'd transitioned into doing more kickboxing, and I remember after starting kickboxing and seeing people training and all that kind of stuff, I remember seeing people that I used to train with that had more of this spring in their step now, and I remember asking them, I'm like, what's going on, what have you been up to? And they're like, oh... Now we've been doing karate and we've been doing kickboxing as well. Oh, but I just had a, I had a fight on the weekend. I'm like, oh, you had a fight? What do you mean you had a fight? Oh, we had a fight in the ring. We've, you know, we've been doing kickboxing shows. I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, okay, that's really cool. And not long after that, I'm like, I want to do that too. So not long after I was speaking to these guys, I had kind of spoken to even one of the trainers and I said, oh, I'd really like to fight. So I started doing kickboxing around this time. And I still think kickboxing is... Because of how much of a wimp I used to think that I was, because I didn't have much self-worth, I didn't have any confidence uh, prior to, say, uh, doing martial arts, for someone who was scared that people were going to find out that he wet the bed, I wasn't a confident guy in any way, in, in, a, in a, say, a fighting sense or a conf- just general confidence sense. But, uh, yeah, martial arts kind of helped change that, and particularly kickboxing, having the opportunity to prove to myself that I wasn't a wimp. So I took that opportunity and I said, yeah, I want to fight. I needed to prove that to myself, that I wasn't a wimp. And to be honest, I wasn't necessarily conscious that that's why I was doing it, but I just knew that I was driven to do this. And I did it and it felt good. And what actually ended up happening was I continually got noticed. Now, I didn't get noticed as a great kickboxer or someone who was a champion kickboxer, but I was tough. I was tough and to be honest, I loved getting recognized for being tough and I wasn't going to stop. I would go down and if I was still awake when I went down, I wasn't going to get up. I love that about myself. After I had my ninth kickboxing fight, I think it was around July 2010, I noticed that something was going on with my vision. For some reason, after I'd had a really hard fight, my vision might go a little bit funny, but maybe after two or three days, it would get back to normal because I'd taken some pretty hard hits in some of my fights but after this last fight something had happened I'd I'd noticed that when I was doing computer work for my business I was having to zoom my computer screen in more and more and more and I couldn't read my tape measure the same way Uh, either it was getting much harder to read my tape measure and I remember there was one weekend I was doing a job down in Sorrento and I had my surfboard in the back so I was driving from Sorrento Uh, I wanted to have a surf down in Phillip Island I probably could have a surf in Sorrento but anyway I really love Phillip Island because it was perfect for someone that had just started surfing I remember driving down the southeastern freeway one day and it wasn't too busy but on this day I remember driving and I had like an itch or a bit of dust in my eye 
and I rubbed one of my eyes and I noticed that the car that was say 20 meters ahead or 30 meters ahead, it disappeared when I had covered one of my eyes. So basically what it meant was that I was developing a pretty major blind spot in the other eye. I think in the next week or two, I went to see an optometrist and then uh, they didn't know what was going on. So then then went to see a more specific eye specialist. And then from there, it kind of went on to me in the next couple of months, losing about 90% of my vision. And for a little while, they didn't actually know what was happening. I remember the first eye specialist I spoke to ended up telling me in my appointment, you're going to see nothing one day. And I'm like, okay, it's uh, unexpected. I knew something was happening, but I'm like, oh, fuck. All right. Uh, Okay. And then I remember going to my car, just crying. But I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And then, uh, yeah, kind of, I did what I could to kind of just put it to the side. Kept trying to run my business. I kept trying to keep fighting at the time. And then just gradually over the next month or so, I'd lost even more vision. I remember remember there was a stage, I can remember it clearly now, still getting ready for work in the morning. My face was getting harder to see in the mirror. I don't know how I handled that time, but I did. I think I used just wanting to do my job as being what I focused on. Like I knew something was happening, but I I don't know how I handled it. Each morning I would get up and I'm like, oh, oh, it's not. Well, maybe it's not as bad as what it was yesterday. Um, but in hindsight, it was just getting worse. It was getting worse on a daily basis, and then it was getting worse weekly, and then eventually, yeah, I'd I'd lost ninety percent. But uh, that was an interesting time not being able to see my face in the mirror anymore. I'm used to it now. Back then, I don't know how I handled it. So when all this stuff started happening, I couldn't drive my car anymore, couldn't fight in the ring anymore. Yeah, things changed a lot. Yeah, I had to give up my business that I was running on the peninsula. I'd been running it pretty successfully for a couple of years and I just couldn't do it anymore. I remember there was one of the last jobs I went to because I couldn't drive my ute. I got my mum with my tools in the back of her car to drop me at the job that I was doing. And just that whole process made me go, I think this is it. I can't do this business anymore. And that was tough because I loved that business. I loved that freedom. It was tough to let go, but I had no choice. I couldn't have my mum drive me to jobs. And then when this vision stuff was happening and like I wasn't working and I thought, oh, it'll be like a month and I'll find another job. Nah, nah, it was it was a lot longer than a month. And there was a long time. It was at least, say, an 18-month, nearly two-year period after I'd given up my business and I couldn't run it anymore to where I found the next piece of work or study. But in that two years, something significant happened. Some real big changes happened. And to be honest, these big changes wouldn't have happened unless I had this time where I wasn't working. So what was happening was... I was like really, really keen to start working because I've said before in other episodes that the actual physical loss of vision wasn't an issue. I was okay with that. I just started living. I still did weights in the gym and I, like, I still caught up with friends and still went out and still went up and tried to pick up girls and all that kind of stuff, although it was done a bit differently now. I still did all this stuff. But the thing that was really getting to me was that I couldn't work. I remember in 2011... Maybe six months into my vision impairment, I was with certain employment agencies to take me on and help me find work and had no real luck there and had days of work with people that I knew and didn't really end up working out. Not that I couldn't do the job, but it's just really hard for someone that can't see well to be on a construction site or be building. It's just, it's not a good combination for, for obvious reasons. So I needed to find something different, but it wasn't easy to find something different. 
But I remember what I did in that time, as I said, in about mid-2011, it's about six months in, I had this idea to write a letter to the standard newspaper on the Mornington Peninsula. So I wrote this letter that I couldn't actually even really read and still know what I'm writing, but I couldn't actually read the writing on my own. Couldn't see it well enough. I wrote the letter. I got my mum to drive me down to the leader newspaper in Mornington and I dropped it in and I said, can you give this to the editor or whatever it is? And about two weeks later, I got the word that the leading newspaper wanted to do a story on my story, I guess, because I, I was writing the letter to get attention to say, uh, I'd really like some work. This is me. This is my story. I might not be able to see very well, but I'm young and fit and whatever. Um, if anyone's got any work in some way, yeah, that's what I was writing the letter for. So the leading newspaper did the story on me, basically saying, here's Jamie, lost most of his vision, and he's really looking for work. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be great. They've done a whole page story on me. I'm definitely going to find work. Unfortunately, nothing was generated from it. But I still feel good about it at the time that I was proactive enough to try and do that. But I still didn't have much luck. I remember scaring through the newspapers at the time with a magnifying glass, trying to find jobs, and it was just doing my head in. I, like, I hated it. I was, every week the newspapers would come in and I'd look through the jobs and nothing was suitable. But what I was doing at that time, I was trying to keep myself busy. I was like, sometimes I'd stay up all night or sleeping in all day. Sometimes all day. I was just, I was depressed. I was flat. I wasn't feeling good. I was, uh, as I've said before, the whole vision loss physically was not a concern for me. But what the vision loss did by making it that I couldn't work, that was nearly driving me insane. So yeah, there'd be times where I was like, Four o'clock in the morning, I was going to the gym and I would go to the 24-hour gym that I was signed up to in uh, like 35 minutes away and I would ride my bike in the dark with this little light on my bike, 10% vision, going to the gym just because I needed something to do. And another thing that was kind of happening in that time was to keep myself sane, what I would do was I would walk twice a day, two eight-kilometer walks, just so I could do something with my time. In this period of time where I'd lost my vision, and I was trying to find work and it was a real tough time. But that's what I was doing to kind of keep myself sane. I don't know, maybe it was a coping mechanism. I'm not sure, but I remember going through this great period of growth in my head. So I've said before, and I still stand by it, the more vision that I lost, the better I started seeing things. And I started to see things in myself differently. I knew I didn't think a whole lot of myself in comparison to others. For, for whatever reason this was. I didn't know why, but I just knew I didn't rate myself as much as other people, or I needed approval from others to get to feel kind of safe and confident, for whatever reason. I remember what I used to do on some of the walks that I was doing twice a day. I, would, I was thinking this might help. I would come up with a like a mantra, and I would say to myself, oh, I'm good, I'm worth it, I can do this, I can do whatever I want. And I would repeat this mantra in my head the whole walk. Or sometimes I'd even say it quietly to myself the whole time thinking that would do it. What I was using this time for was to try and build myself up, I guess, uh, mentally because I knew something wasn't right. What I started to figure was if everything's going to go dark one day, if I'm going to see nothing one day, which is what I was originally told, I want to be pretty happy with who I am. If I lose everything around me like I did, if all I've got is me, I want to be happy with that. But I recognised that I wasn't. So that's what set me on the path for improving who I am. Well, that's why when I was starting to do these walks, I'd, I'd say these mantras in my head to try and improve it because I didn't know any other way. But I, I knew that I was, I don't know. I, didn't, I don't know. Actually, I don't know whether I knew at the time how fortunate I was, but looking back, I was very fortunate to realize that thing. 
when the universe decided to take my vision for whatever reason or most of my vision I was helped in a way to be able to see myself better and other things around me better and maybe things that had happened to me or, or whatever. I am so fortunate that I was able to have that happen because if I didn't lose these things around me and say lose my business, lose the ability to fight and whatever else I had going on, I would probably might not have changed and I might not have had that thought come in and that thought was if I'm going to lose everything, well, what have I got? I've just got me. I mean, okay, yes, you could argue and people say, well, you've got family and you've got this and you've got that. But what I think is if you're not happy with yourself in whatever way that is, things can be tough. You might have everything around you, but if you're not happy with who you are for some reason, things aren't good. And I didn't like that. But I'm still so fortunate that I had these things taken away for whatever reason so I could realize uh, I could see exactly kind of how I felt about myself. And I needed to change it. That set me on a path for properly changing how I felt about myself. In that interview that I guess the journalist did for the story that the leader newspaper did for me, I remember saying, you know, one day I'm going to go to university and I'm going to help people like me. I don't think I knew what I was saying at the time. I think I wanted to be an advocate for people with disabilities or I knew I wanted to go to university. I don't know how I was going to make that happen considering I barely even finished high school, but... That's a thing that I said in that story. The first kind of thing that kind of came into my life, again, after the big long break, after not working for a while, I started studying at TAFE at Frankston. And I did that for a little while, and then I ended up getting a bit of work as well, which was great. The work that I got was with the Frankston Council, involved working in the community, and some of the work that I'd done was working with young people. And someone must have realised maybe how well I just kind of naturally work with them, young people for some reason. So it was recommended to me that I started doing youth work. And I'm like, okay, I'll do this. So I started volunteering at a youth place in Frankston. And I realized how much I liked it. And I guess it kind of makes sense to me. I was able to work with kids that I guess had similar or even worse backgrounds in the way they were treated or, or whatever. So that was really good. I love the opportunity to work with kids that have had similar backgrounds to me or had similar backgrounds where they were still in that environment or not, whatever it is. I naturally loved working with kids or teenagers or whatever, and for some reason I was good at it, so I kept doing it. So that was the first kind of job that I'd had after a couple of years of not working. And then, uh, yeah, I started studying at TAFE as well in Frankston, and I did that for a couple of years. And then it was just one day I'm like, you know what? I think I want to take this a little bit further. Like, I really love psychology. I, I like that kind of stuff. And then I had the thought one day, I'm going to go to uni. I'm going to study a psych degree. And now I, I don't know how I thought I was going to make this happen. As I've said before, like I, I barely finished high school. So I don't know how I was going to make this happen, but I did. There was a lot of work, hard work to make it happen. There were some people that also put in a lot of effort to make it happen for me as well and, uh, and help me along the way. But I got in. And I still remember that day in 2014, January 2014, January 17th, 2014, someone called me and said, you got in. I just read your name in the Herald Sun. You got in the psychology degree. And I'm like, really? It's such, a, oh, such an awesome thing. Like, there was no way I'd ever thought I was ever going to be able to do something like that. Not only like with vision, but without vision, that was awesome. So I started doing my psych degree. And I, I think I was like, for a long time, I felt like probably like a fish out of water. And I was just surviving. Probably for the first couple of years, I was probably just surviving on just getting marks needed to pass. 
I reckon about halfway through the degree, I was doing a stats assignment because there's quite a lot of stats in the psychology degree. I remember I was doing a stats assignment and I got a decent mark. It wasn't a great mark, but it was a decent mark. And that little thing that happened made me go, oh, maybe I can do this. And that started a little, I don't know, a little thing in me that made me go, you know what? I can do this. Uh, I started to put more effort and energy because I had that belief now, that little spark of belief that I could do it. Where I am now, I've just recently, last year I've finished my psych degree and I've just started my honours in psychology. I've started my fourth year in psychology, which is definitely not something I had ever thought possible, but I'm in it. Eventually, I was fortunate enough to meet someone who was still my beautiful wife today. But when that relationship started, I was fucking scared. And I think probably even was, I don't know, maybe I was even doing things initially to try and sabotage it for whatever reason. Not, you know, I was just scared. And I think, yeah, look, it all, it all comes down to maybe what I was thinking about myself. I'm like, well, this person's not going to like me. And if they do now, they're going to find some reason not to. I mean, this all comes back down to childhood stuff and how, I, you know, attention that was or wasn't paid or things that had happened back in the childhood by particularly step parents that were fucking assholes and that's how i end up thinking about myself and then have fear have fear that maybe you know people aren't going to like me one of the most significant things that i remember happening particularly just after i'd started a relationship i i'd actually started writing a book about everything that had happened and i'm still finishing that book today as well but i remember writing one of the chapters I'm not fearful of what other people can do to me, but I was fearful of what I would do in reaction to people hurting me. Now, I don't mean doing something to them, but as a coping mechanism that I had learned as a child, I just kind of switched off and thought nothing about myself and then I would blame myself when something happened. So I would just retreat to a part of my head that would go and just run away and just be scared and then just blame himself and be angry at myself that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't worth loving or I wasn't worth showing attention to for whatever reason. So that's what I would do. But that was a cold place. But that's what I would do in reaction. So when, say, I started seeing my wife early on, I was scared, but I wasn't scared what she would do. I was scared if, say, something happened and we broke up or she broke up with me or something like that. I was scared of where I would go in my head. I was fearful of that place. I didn't know what that place was or why I was scared, but that's what I was fearful of. I remember writing this part of the chapter, and as I was writing this part of the chapter, in the big black text that I used to write with, because I had to write in big words, big black text, because I didn't, couldn't use a computer at the time. You know, I, was, I was writing in the big black text, and I was, had tears streaming down my face, writing this part of the book that said, what I need to do is take a walk behind that wall where that child is, where I am as a child, where I'm hiding, and take this child by the hand and say, mate, buddy, you're with me now. Things started to change after I had that thought. Because what I realized was after I had penned that, after I had written that, after I'd had that thought, I realized there was a part of my brain that was no longer controlled by that child. The man was in charge now. And I became far less fearful. But I developed that coping mechanism of going to that place in my head as a child. As, you know, it's just a way of getting through things. So maybe in reaction to not getting enough attention from a father, being treated by a stepfather in a certain way, or being badly treated by a stepmother, I could just blame myself. 
oh, I'm not good enough because of this reason, because of that reason, because I'm doing this, because I'm doing that. I would just use that as a coping mechanism. I would just retreat and run behind that wall. But then I took a walk behind that wall and I took that kid by its hand and I'm in control now. I ain't running to that place anymore. I deal with things now in a far stronger way. So just kind of going back to mum, and I guess I haven't really spoken too much about my dad, but say going back to mum or dad, there was years where I guess I was still mum's protector. Even up until recently, I've had to kind of let it go. And I guess there was even resentment that I had for mum and dad for, for putting me in situations or treating a certain way. So I'll give you an example of say, um, dad had his own things going on. And he probably didn't know how to give proper love and attention to his kids because that's all he knew. He didn't really know how to give special attention to either all the kids at once, you know, one at a time or whatever. He, like, he just, he just didn't know. He probably hadn't had that happen to him. But, but I, was, I was pretty resentful about that for a long time. And I think I was probably almost resentful as well that the mum didn't think enough about herself to put herself in those positions. And then I guess to put me in that position where I had to take care of her. But like, it was just a thing. I was just annoyed. But I guess looking at it now, I would probably guarantee there's not many people that would go through situations like I have and family environments like I did that you're going to be able to get through it without therapy and be a normal human being. But that's what I did. And so what I guess the therapy has helped me be able to to is not be as angry and resentful. It's not just that that helps. One of the biggest things that has helped, I've got to accept. I'm not fully there yet. I haven't fully made peace. Maybe one day I will, but I've got to accept that that's how it was. And I have accepted that's the way it was, but I mean, I've got to accept that's the way they were. I can get triggered pretty easily and get annoyed sometimes, but it's nowhere near as bad. And I'm, I'm still in the process of making peace. But one of the most significant things that makes me feel better about my situation is that I now have a daughter. And that daughter, my daughter, my beautiful daughter, Cleo, is never, ever going to experience anything like what I did, ever. She's going to receive full love no matter what no matter what i'm going to be doing in my life no matter what position of my life i'm in no matter what kind of mood that i am in she is going to feel loved 100 percent from me and my wife nothing is going to get in the way no matter whatever happened to me as a child or as a teenager or me losing my vision is ever going to get in the way of how much i love and show love to my my little girl but that's where i'm at with my parents i haven't fully made peace but i'm on the way I was an extremely motivated person before I lost my vision. I was fighting in the ring, as I said, and I, had, I was extremely driven for my business. But as I talked about in one of the last episodes, I still think about that time and I wish I had done certain things better uh, and worked harder and believed, more importantly, I wish I believed in myself more. I guess in hindsight, looking back on it now, my childhood and whatever, I was a product of that environment. For that time before I lost my vision, I was a product of an environment where I was treated in a certain way and my siblings were treated in a certain way, whether people that knew what they were doing it or not, it doesn't matter, but I was a product of that. It was going to make someone that didn't really think that much about themselves. But I was still driven at that time, but looking back on it now, you know, looking back on it for a long time, I'd wish I had done better in that time. As I said in the last episode, I am now, I, I'm never going to walk away from a situation again or a time in my life again 
wishing that I had done better, wishing that I had worked harder, wishing I had thought about myself more. That's not going to happen. Because of the position that I'm in now, I know who I am. I know what drives me. I know what motivates me. And uh, look, yeah, maybe after, maybe after therapy and talking to people through all these things, whatever, however I got there, maybe all those walks that I wasn't working, uh, all those walks that I did to try to talk to myself about certain things and try and figure things out, maybe they helped as well. But I am now in a position where I am highly motivated for the right reasons. I'm highly motivated for one thing. The one thing I want to be who I'm supposed to be with nothing else holding him back. I don't want any emotional change holding me down. I don't want any self-belief issues holding me back from being who I'm truly supposed to be in this world, in this life. And that's who I am now. And I'll still be working on this for a long time, but I feel that's who I am now. I'm someone who's highly motivated. I want to be who I'm supposed to be almost on a spiritual level. I don't want anything holding me back. Nothing's going to stop me from presenting to this world who I'm supposed to be. And that's who I am now. And it feels good because there was a long time where that was not the case. I was a watered down version of who I truly am because I was so fucking concerned of what other people thought. I needed other people's approval. That's not who I am now. So who I am now? Why do I study psychology? Why do I work with youth? Why do, I, why do I make a podcast? Why am I writing a book? Why did I forget about who I was? Recently, as I said, I've forgotten about who I was. What drives me? What do I really want? Well, what drives me is I love being who I am and showing that to the world in whatever way that I can. And what also drives me and what I love is helping other people be who they are who they should be and helping create a belief in people that they can be who they are and they have the opportunity to be who they are no matter what age you are and whether you if you're young or if you're old it doesn't matter if you choose to be who you are and you want to be who you are you can be that's what drives me that's what i love i love that kind of stuff First of all, maybe I needed to figure it out for myself. I needed to figure out ways that I could drop those emotional change and work through what I needed to work through to realize I could also support other people in doing the same thing. That fucking drives me so much. I love it. I love it. Even just now, I'm doing this podcast, hoping it's going to go out for people. I love doing this kind of stuff. One of the things I guess I'm lucky in, you know, like whether this was, this was just in my DNA or whether it was growing up in a, a household where I was, a say, a four-year-old and I had a, a stepdad who was violent, attacking me, attacking mum and putting a threat to my life or mum's life or a threat to my existence. Maybe it could have been that that built a resilience or a strength in me where I'm like, no one is ever going to fucking stop me from doing exactly what I want. No vision issue is going to stop me from doing exactly what I want. Nothing is going to stop me and I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to give up. I started this journey of being a psychologist nearly 10 years ago. And if it was to go for another 10 years, you know what? I'd still be doing it. No person, no events, no nothing is ever going to get in the way of me reaching my goals. Maybe I'm stubborn, but I'm okay with that. Nothing is ever going to get in the way of me doing what I want to do. And I guess maybe this is something I want to take from myself and give to other people sometimes, that kind of resilience, that kind of never give up attitude. You know, I might have had issues in my life where I didn't think enough about myself, but I've never had the issue of giving up, never going to give up. 
I've got a goal, I'm going to achieve it. I'm going to do anything that I need to do in this life to make it happen. It might be tough, but I'm going to do it. And to be honest, I love that about myself. And if there's ways that I could help or support others into having a similar attitude so they didn't give up, I want to give that to people however I can. So out of everything that has ever happened to me, everything that I've ever gone through, everything I've ever learned, I'm here now and I want to live as the best version of me in whatever way possible and I want to support others in whatever way I can, in whatever way I need to, to support them in being their full version of themselves as well. That's why I do what I do. That's what I love what I do. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with me in some way or contact me or send me feedback, I'm on Instagram and Facebook under The Mind Tradie. I'm on Spotify. You can follow me there. I'm on Apple. You can subscribe there and give me a five-star review if you like what you're hearing. That would be absolutely fantastic. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you liked it, please share it with your friends and share on social media and subscribe. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram and watch live conversations on Wednesdays and get daily updates. You can also follow the YouTube channel and watch live conversations and listen to the podcast from there. Keep sending in your emails and messages as I love reading them and interacting with you, and I'll always respond to you. So until next week, take care of yourselves and each other.